Hi, it's Stephen Colbert, and I'm here to tell you about The Late Show Pod Show, which is the podcast of The Late Show with me, Stephen Colbert. And I'm here with my uh, producer of the podcast, Becca. Hi, Becca. Hi, Stephen. So what do people get when they listen to The Late Show Pod Show? Let's, let's sell this thing. The extended moments, for sure, because we run out of time for broadcast, but we have plenty of time on the podcast. It's kind of like being a live audience member of the show because you get things that no one else hears. Listen to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. When you want the best, you have to act fast, especially when hiring for your business. You want to find the most talented people before the competition scoops them up. And the best way to do that? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds top talent fast. In fact, four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Spotify. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Episode 25 of What Most People Think. 25, and look, on the 20, the quarter century episode, we're, we're leaving. We're leaving the EU. It's, it's really happening. Uh, it's happening as I record this on Friday of this week. And I know, look, I know not everybody wants it to happen, uh, but isn't it better to just be getting on with the next chapter? No, Jeff, no, let's carry on. The indecision, indicative votes. Anyway, look, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. You got, you got any parties lined up? Yeah, you're going to be bonging. You're going to be bonging, Big Ben bonging for blimmin' well British Bulldog Brexit. Or are you, uh, are you going to be doing any, some Euro parties? Farewell, farewell to the Euro parties. They don't, I think, I think both those parties are kind of weird. Do you know what I mean? Like, because for, for me, leaving the EU was, uh, it was never massively ideological. You know, I think that it came from a place of patriotism and optimism. But, um, but yeah, you know, it, it's, it's uh, extricating ourselves from a political union. So it was not necessarily the sort of thing that I would have a party over. In, in the same way, I wouldn't have a party over changing my car insurance provider, you know. But, um, but I think the Euro parties, they're going to be a bit sad, aren't they? Because it's just sort of going to be like a lot of Euro flags. And if they play European music, which would probably be a bit bad, you know, it's going it's, it's to seem like a, a Eurovision, but without Graham Norton. And probably the UK getting more points now that we've, that we've left, finally. Or will we ever get a point at Eurovision again? Does it fucking matter? But, um, but yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to change. And you know what? Uh, anyway, look, I, actually, I'll, I'll speak more about Brexit in a minute, just to let you know what this podcast is. This is called What Most People Think, and it's about trying to get to the heart of, like, everyday people's views. You know, as, as, I, as I record this, there was the NTAs last night, uh, and what always makes me laugh about those awards is that when you let the public vote, every once in a while, there's a result that just pisses off the industry. <laughs> and every time Mrs Brown's Boys wins, because obviously this year it was up against Ricky Gervais's sitcom you know and a lot of other shows that the industry would have liked to see get a, a, a recognition but mrs brown's boys won again now look i think mrs brown's boys I, I used to like it a lot i think it's gone off the boil but there's something fucking hilarious about watching people on twitter lose their shit <laughs> that when you know in the british pub yeah they look they like an old-fashioned sitcom with with laughs and pratfalls in it you know deal with it mrs brown's boys is kind of like you know the comedy equivalent of brexit is you know the establishment they don't understand it but it does have the numbers, right? Um, but yeah, so, you know, it's kind of, that's where I'm coming from. I'm not saying, 
you know, uh, this is the Mrs. Brown's Boys of podcast, so some people might see it that way. But yeah, we talk about politics and social issues and we try and look at, you know, what are ordinary people thinking? Every so often we have a guest, uh, I haven't had one for a while, but um, I had the opportunity to speak to Christopher Snowden. Now Chris is a, um, he's a real libertarian, got real scrutiny on the nanny state, which obviously if you've seen my current tour, Taking Liberties, uh, you'll understand that he's helped inform a lot of my thinking. And you know, I mentioned the tour there, why not talk about the tour for once? Uh, we got back on the road last Saturday in Newcastle and thank you so much to everybody that came to that. That was fun man and the thing was it was starting at 5 p.m and i was sort of thinking what what, what are the audience going to be like i mean like but you know not to put too fine a point point on it there's an old saying in comedy is the more you drink the funnier we get so i thought this is going to be really sober and then i should have remembered it's newcastle they're already drunk by 5 p.m right let's do some regional stereotypes they're already pissed they've been on it since fucking breakfast so um the atmosphere was fantastic we filled the room 300 people and um, the football was happening as well. There was Chinese New Year, and it just felt like a great, um, a great day to be in the heart of Newcastle City Centre. And I would say about Newcastle as well, it's so great having the football, the, the the stadium right in the middle of the the city. I don't I don't know if anywhere else has that. It's like this fucking cathedral. Just hearing the anyway, I was going a bit um, sort of a Ron manager there. You know, jumpers for goalposts, isn't it? Mm? Uh, but yeah, so the tour is back underway, and we are talking to Christopher. Snowden today and if you, if you this this chat I think it's a bit like um, the Dominic Frisbee one I don't know if you remember that from the summer about uh, tax you know we have a good laugh and stuff but you will feel a bit smarter uh, by the end so that's coming up shortly but just just a bit more on Brexit here I, I think that the um, I think the 50p thing was funny wasn't it I think the 50p coin has just shown how the extreme ends of the argument of both sides lost their minds because it was only like a week or so previously where the Remainers were getting upset about the kind of rampant symbolism of Big Ben bonging. This is ridiculous, you know, I thought it was supposed to be about leaving a political union, this is just kind of sentimental bollocks. And then you've got people like Alistair Campbell saying online that he will refuse any of the new Brexit 50p's. You know, he's just, he's such a, he's a bit of a fall for grace from Alistair and Andrew Adonis. They're like, we're going to fight. Brexit in the high courts, and now they're basically just handing back loose change to shopkeepers. It's uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a fall from grace, and I don't know, like what I think it's a bit weird to be honest. The coin thing, I thought it was, it was, um, you know, you got to do something, right? You're leaving the European Union, you got to do something commemorative. So what is is there a commemorative thing that they would have liked? Maybe it should have been something more ambitious, like a like a fifty quid note. Like no one ever gets. Fifty pound notes are still, are still they take your breath away, <laughs> don't they? Like you just don't, and because of the way that we're we're more cashless now, you just you, you're, in your whole life, in your whole life, like you might they're like the Northern Lights of of of, of notes, aren't they? You might not have seen more than ten in your whole life. That is bizarre, or maybe like a two pound coin. For me, two pound coins have never fully lost their their novelty, right? I think two pound coins. I don't know if it's because the age I was when they were because bought in, because they were bought in once, weren't they? And then they sort of, there weren't many. And then, you know, with the whole two metals thing going on, um, they're like ice cream. I've just, I've never got over how much fun it is to eat chocolate ice cream. So maybe, maybe they picked the, the wrong coin, but, you know, it, it all feels weirdly chilled out, Brexit, doesn't it? When you think, like, how rancorous the argument was, you know, if you think back to, like, you know, the, the high-octane indicative votes. Remember those? That was like the Champions League 
semi-finals, wasn't it, of Brexit? And then Super Saturday was what well, felt like the final, but of course it was another fucking postponement. But now it just, I don't know. I don't know. It just feels like it's... Uh, it's just going to tick up, and I, I know that I know that we're you know going into like a, a transitional period, and that's part of the reason, and and not much is set to change. But I do think going forward that it's going to be very hard for people to to prove whether or not Brexit has been uh, an objective success or failure, right? Because so much else is going to happen in the meantime. It's going to be sort of like your great grandparents standing around a baby trying to say which one it looks like, claiming credit for it. You know, well, you know what? So much as happen there's so many other fucking factors here i don't know if it really does look like ufo um but yeah for some people obviously um you know if you voted to leave the european union because you wanted democracy to be closer to home then it's already a success for someone like me um like if you on the other hand if you you know if you really prize freedom of movement there then that's a big loss but there was something Caroline Lucas said actually. She said um, she said um, she felt sad that you know her children and the nation's children. Were, you know, it's one of these very emotive sort of lefty posts that we were going to lose the right to live, work, and love in the EU. And I sort of thought, well, okay, look, the EU have been guilty of a fair bit of overreach in their time. I'm not even sure the EU have slapped tariffs on love, right? I think you can still do that. I think you can still get visas. I think I think it's going to still happen. I mean, if you look at like where Brits tend to live, right? So you would say that look, people live in the EU because of freedom of movement and because hey, they're our closest neighbours. And then and then you look at where most Brits have chosen to go and live: New Zealand, Australia, Canada. Now that could just be because they hate their fucking parents, right? <laughs> or their family, or they you know they're running away from you know sort of childcare issues. But childcare, that's not right, is it? No, childcare is just like having um. Having babysitters, that doesn't make sense. What, like, they, they were a babysitter, 40 quid, and they've emigrated. No, I mean, I mean, child support agent uh, things. Now it sounds like I'm hiding something. But, but so, yeah, I, I, I think, like, everything in my life, right, that has um, been predicted to be, uh, like, a dystopia or a utopia, um, it, it's going to fall somewhere in between, isn't it? It's going to fall somewhere in between. I just want to say a quick um, thank you to uh, people that watched me on uh, Would I Lie to You recently. That was so much fun to do. And thank you for anybody that tweets about it. When you tweet about stuff like that, it just does me a favour because, um, you know, I get enough stick as it is. And, you know, these TV producers, they sort of think it's Twitter is um, this online focus group rather than this fucking uh, public forum for nutters than it really is. I also made my debut on The Pledge. And that was uh, that was a lot of fun, man. Sitting there with Nick Ferrari, June Sarpong, Afua Hirsch, and Michelle Dubry, just shooting the shit. Hopefully, I'll be back on that. But yeah, it's good. It's a good. It's a good format. That I enjoyed that. So, like I say, if you ever you see me doing stuff on telly, tweet it or you know use the hashtags, all that stuff, because it, it does do me um, a favour. So, but thank you to the people that are already doing that. Uh, I always do a thank you and a fuck you. The fuck you uh, this week is to myself um, for I, I had a shot of turmeric. The other day. Now I don't know, you know, where you live in the country, but if you live in, if you live in metropolitan areas, you have these shops that have things like a shot of ginger or a shot of turmeric, one ninety nine a pop, right? <laughs> but it's supposed to be, it's supposed to be healthful. I think for one ninety nine a pop, I'm, I'm wanting more than fucking healthful. I'm wanting, I'm wanting an extra half inch on the fucking shaft. Um, <laughs> oh, by the way, I've got a swear list apparently. I've got a swear list. I, I, I don't know how my swearing is this episode so far. Uh, but it was, there was a lot of swearing last time. The reason being was that I recorded it late at night and when I'm tired and my brain's struggling to keep up, the word fuck becomes like a comma. 
So I'm going, yeah, he went to the fucking um and was fucking So I will I will keep an eye on that. But but yeah, I had this I had this shot of turmeric and it it reminded me of if you've seen Rise of Skywalker, there's this moment where Ray calls out to like a thousand generations of Jedi to be with her. Uh not not in that sense. Uh you know, well, yeah. Uh, <laughs> she's a good looking girl that's what I'm saying don't take any liberties Qui-Gon um, and she calls out and, and you know they, they help her and I thought I sort of felt like when I had this shot of turmeric that, that all my ancestors were calling me a wanker basically because they were just, they were just what has happened to you Jeff um, and this happens right when you live and work in London you're the kind of offer food offer that you have they have things like itsu it's kind of Japanese style fast food and um, so I went in Itsu the other night, right? I had a gig coming up. I thought, I'll just have something healthy, man. I'm trying to lose weight. Maybe I'll have the, the Thai low-calorie coconut veggie brown sauce fucking vomit box, right? And, um, yeah, it was awful. And, and and the worst thing was about half an hour later, I just felt hungry. I thought, I was just gutted that I didn't get a ham and cheese roll. But I am. I'm losing a little bit of weight, right? I'm losing a little bit of weight. And I know I'm losing weight because um, I feel angry, a bit tired, and a bit cold, right? Do you ever notice something? You lose your first little layer of fat off you. You just suddenly start suddenly start feeling cold. You know what I mean? You suddenly start feeling like, like your wife at night. Just, can you, can you shut that window? Can you shut, oh, a bit nippy in here, just looking for reassurance from everybody else. But that's because essentially with my layer of fat, um, you know, as I was tipping 13 and a half stone, I was essentially wearing like another coat. <laughs> That's what fat is, isn't it? It's like nature's coat. I miss it. Anyway, listen, let's get on with the chat now. Uh, it's Christopher Snowden here, and we're going to be talking all things Nanny State. So, uh, Christopher Snowden there, who, as we are starting a podcast, interestingly, just had a cheeky vape there. Did I see a little cheeky vape? A little cheeky vape. Which kind of just brings us immediately to to where you're coming from. You are a person that believes in the the pleasures of being alive, right? Like the vape, drink, stay out of my fucking business. Yeah, the drinking, the gambling, the smoking, what have you. Don't smoke, actually, but I'm not against people doing so. Yeah. So, yeah, nanny state. Is uh, as you might say, I, I'm uh, I'm again. You're not getting, a fan. It's something that you've been you've written books on and stuff that you've mm. been against your 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 whole life. Is it? I've often thought that just to, as a point to start, is it a personality thing? This you know, it, does it come? Because obviously, as we get older, we we all believe our political worldview is this this sort of uh, coherent synthesis of the world. But where does it come from in your character? Um, I th- I sort of remember quite a young age, kind of, I don't know, 12 or 13, thinking that there are, you know, there are too many things that you can't do, and that when my generation grew Running up, we would, we would get rid of them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. uh, uh, but, you know, things like the war on drugs, like even then I thought, yeah. well, this is crazy that these things are banned, and it won't last for long, and once John Major's out of office, we'll presumably get rid of all yeah, this kind of stuff. Yeah, these stuffy concerns, right? Get Labour in, and we'll roll back all exactly, this. Exactly, yeah. I mean, to be fair, Labour did have the odd 24-hour drinking thing, which was quite good. Yeah. So there was a little bit of a libertarian streak in those early years, you know, with a, with a super casino in Blackpool yes, they were going to build, yeah, remember, remember that? that? Yeah. And, Gordon Brown put an, put an end to it. I mean, it's in black. Um, it was never going to be a super casino, was it? Oh, it, was it was just going to be a big casino. <laughs> <laughs> it would have properly regenerated the place. Though. I mean, it really yeah. would have done. The people in Blackpool were so keen to have it. And Manchester as well it eventually kind of looked like they were going to have it. Um, and various Puritans 
and Andy Gamble people were celebrating when Gordon Brown got rid of it. But the people yeah. in the town, you know, the pe- people who thought they were going to get the casino were not happy at all. Um, so, yeah, I, mean, I always kind of just assumed that we would be moving in a more liberal direction. And it was a shock to me getting older to find that actually a lot of my generation didn't believe that at all. In fact, mm. thought there was far too much freedom. The reason I too much freedom. Yeah, just just (laughs) as a phrase. Let's just sort of. uh, Well, they wouldn't. They wouldn't put it like that, of course. They wouldn't. They'd say there there are too many risks or too many hazards or whatever. But I, yeah, I I think it's it's obviously an issue of freedom. I got into it in a sort of professional capacity, more or less accidentally. Um, I was a very enthusiastic smoker until Mm. about 2012. I think when I switched to vaping. Um, and I was a particularly prolific and enthusiastic smoker when the smoking ban came in. And a couple of years before the UK had a smoking ban, I was in places like New Zealand and a few parts of America where they mm. had smoking bans. And I'd never come across the idea of them before, really. Just the idea that you would mm. ban smoking in a pub. I'd never heard anybody say we should ban smoking in pubs. Um, and I was interested in why it happened. And then when the discussion started in, in Britain and you started hearing action on smoking health say we must have a smoking ban, I go, well, this surely will never happen. And it happened really quickly. You know? And I was interested to see how it... Uh, who were these people who were, who were lobbying for this, you know? And I started looking at it from a historical perspective and started reading up on on the history of the issue. And it wasn't, there were no books about the history of the anti-smoking movement, but there's quite a lot of books about the history of tobacco and, yeah. and the tobacco industry and that kind of thing. And you could sort of piece it together, the various bits of, kind of primary and secondary research, uh, piece together the story of the anti-smoking movement, which went back to literally the kind of the, the day that Columbus discovered the stuff in America. You know, the, the first guy to from Europe to smoke was imprisoned by the Inquisition for it <laughs> when he when he got back to uh, to, to uh, Portugal. Uh, or Imagine Spain. explain that when you get back from your fag break at work. Well, it was you, you know can, where, where you been? Is all you nobody expected that. Well, um, you can imagine how surprising it would have been for people to see, you know, it must for, be, yeah, with it's no an action, no it, history of it whatsoever yeah. to see people blowing smoke out of their it nose and mouth. It's weird. I've often found it, that I still I look at people when they're smoking. It's a sort of fascinating, <laughs> weird thing, and vaping has sort of exacerbated it with these huge smoke rings, and it's all yeah. Become, they're, they're, those people are annoying. They're ruining it for everybody else. That's why you can't vape anywhere now yeah, because of the people blowing out the huge clouds. Why of do you think they do it? They just get a kick out of it. There's quite a few people, uh, younger people, I would have to say, who they don't even have any nicotine in the vape. They just like yeah. doing what they call cloud chasing, and they're blowing huge clouds of this stuff out. So they're not even doing it as just a kind of way of yeah, yeah. They just enjoy doing it, I guess. Do you think uh, they think it communicates like dick size? Uh, they're compensating for something no it's very much it's not just the bloke it's a very specific type of bloke you know they've nearly always got beards black t-shirts cargo pants yeah Um, there's a a very specific set of people I've been to a couple of vaping uh, conventions and very similar crowds sort of like the D&D conventions you know yeah yeah And so you think that you think in a way that like that drives because there is a moment. This is one of your current bugbears. You talk about then like a, obviously the history of prohibition with smoking, but at the moment I see a lot of stuff that you're tweeting and and you're it's a great Twitter account yours. And just simply in terms of keeping up to where the kind of lifestyle prefects are, is that then trying to ban vaping in in certain places and America and, especially at the moment. Yeah, and that's something you're particularly exercised by. Yeah, and you should, everyone should be really. I mean, the the beauty about the vaping issue is. Unlike all the other 
stuff I write about, the gambling and smoking and alcohol, you know, there are obviously harms associated with those things. And the, the kind of libertarian approach is, well, you know, we'll kind of, regulation is not a bad thing. You need to have a certain amount of regulation. We don't yeah. want kids doing it, for example. But ultimately, pe people must be free to decide. And it is an unfortunate consequence that there will always be a small proportion of gamblers, for example, who become problem gamblers, a small proportion mm. of drinkers who become problem drinkers, and so on. But the vast majority of consumers actually do never have a problem with it, and we need to try and deal with the mm. kind of problematic minority as, as best we can without restricting the, the rights of the majority. With the vaping issue, um, it's great because not only have you got a kind of libertarian argument, you've got a very strong health argument. Mm. So actually the libertarian approach is not just pro-freedom, it's actually pro-health. And so you have this kind of coalition of people like myself uh, kind of allied with people like you know, Public Health England, which is mm. normally one of my you know, kind of bogeymen, Public yeah. Health England. They're wrong about nearly everything else, but they're right about vaping. And they're not pro-vaping because they're pro-freedom, quite obviously. No. They see it quite rightly, as a very effective way, again, people like myself, who was an you know, extremely committed smoker, yeah. um, to, uh, to, to give up smoking. And so in that instance, the kind of the free market approach actually is a pro-health approach. And in, in reality, actually, that, that is often the case in practice, because prohibition might, can be seen as a sort of public health Mm. Um, intervention, a very strong public health intervention, but actually it wasn't pro-health, it led to worse health. Speaking of health, what are the fears that you hear about popcorn lung? Right? Yeah. Is that a thing? Is that real? That is... I, I mean, think, one of the biggest fears is that people just get really pissed off of you for introducing a weird smell into an environment. I've never... Mm. Which is a reason that a lot of people spoke the smoking ban, if we're honest. Yes. I'm not sure many people genuinely thought there were a lot of bar workers dropping dead from secondhand smoke. They just didn't like the smell of it. Smokers were a minority, and a dwindling minority. Yeah, yeah. And I think there was always going to come a point where the, you know, the majority would just say, That's know, true. We, we, yeah, want, yeah. we want an end to this. Um, popcorn lung, I think, is the most popular, well, not the, it's the most common myth. Apparently, mm. it's very popular on, uh, on Facebook and places. Popcorn lung is a disease that is associated or was associated with people who worked in popcorn factories because there's a mm. chemical, the name of which escapes me for the moment, there's a chemical used in production of popcorn. Toffee? Salt? <laughs> it's <laughs> called diacetyl something. I can't yeah. remember exactly what it is. Um, and it caused some kind of lung disease mm -hmm. in this you know, very, very heavily exposed yeah, yeah. subset of the, of the workforce. And the same chemical is used uh, in a m much, much lower proportion in certain vape juices hmm. um, it's actually in, in you find it um, in more concentrated form in, in cigarettes themselves but yeah. smokers never get popcorn lung right mm -hmm. it's, you have to be exposed to live long. very very heavily <laughs> Okay, just button in a little bit on the chat there. I hope you're enjoying it. Just to hype a few things, really. Obviously, the tour is back underway. There's a few. I uh, just had the latest set of sales figures, and it's looking good, man. It's looking good. There was a lot of tickets sold from when I was on the fuck. Oh, I nearly swore again. Well, yeah, why say the fucking telly, Jeff? There's absolutely no reason for that swear word. But Lime Regis, 22nd of February, is one that's pushed on but could do with a tickle. Colchester Arts Centre, that's moving now, and uh, that's on the 23rd of February. The Stourport one, I'm going to keep pushing this. Um, there was a little bit of movement, so I don't know if that was the podcast or people saw me uh, getting confused on what I lied to you. I thought, yeah, let's go and see this clown. Uh, Wrexham, 7th of March, my only Welsh date of the tour. I hope to see you there. Uh, Shrewsbury, have I mentioned Shrewsbury? I'm on the 25th of March, I'm at the Theatre Severn, Severn in Shrewsbury. 
and I have no idea what a Shrewsbury accent is. I know that they got a good result against Liverpool's reserves, but um, but yeah, maybe Shrewsbury's buzzing now. You know, the town is giving them a new lease of life, getting that two-all draw against Liverpool's youth team. Um, so that is that's actually selling well. But um, you know, let's fill that one. And then Exeter, uh, the fourth of April. Uh, at the Northcott Theatre. I'm, I'm just excited about this because it's Northcott or the Northcott. There's no specific reason other than that. I'm back in Bath, Friday the 3rd of April. I am back in Bath at the Comedy Festival. We did the Rondo Theatre there, only a uh, small one, sold it out, and uh, we're coming back to a slightly bigger room, and that's all ticking over very nicely. Um, like I say, there are a few TV things coming up this week, actually. This week, I don't know if I'm able to... Um... So I'm going to be on the news quiz on Friday, so do... Download that from Radio 4. Um, I might be on Question Time uh, this Thursday, and I might be on another satirical, topical news show, uh, panel show on Friday night, but you'll find out about that soon enough. But like I say, if you see me on something on telly, whatever it is, Instagram, Twitter, just try and say, say something nice, because I'm sure there'll be plenty of people up there calling me a twat. I, you know, it's interesting what you said about like the risks around gambling and alcohol and, and 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 the more known entities to us that most people don't encounter them. You know, and that is something that, that it feels like is is lost, isn't it? That that most things are characterised by their most even like politics, they're characterised by their most extreme ends. But mm. but just the, the overwhelming majority of people are, are fine with these things. And I think that like you know, something like fixed odds gambling machines. Right? Yeah. This is a question I've always had in my mind. Is that if you if you if you can basically do your kids' college fund in an afternoon on that, right? You've obviously got a personality type that that, that is drawn to that sort of jeopardy. Mm. Are there any studies, or, or is there any intuition in terms of right? You you just stop fixed odds things. What happens in their character? Because I'm guessing that doesn't just go away. They're no, they, already that kind of person. They just go online, really, and that's that's what's happening, mm. as we can tell. And it's what I said would happen beforehand and can people ignore me and then literally the day that they effectively banned fixed odds betting signals there were people on the radio going it's great that we banned fixed uh, fixed odds betting signals but now we need to clamp down online because obviously these people are just going to go online well regulating online is a hell of a more difficult than regulating um high street bookmakers um it's i mean the, the whole question of addiction is 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 fascinating and complex and not even particularly well defined we have a growing moral panic about gambling in this country, and I, it's only going to get worse. You mm. can see people are really going for it. Once they've got that win with the, the old fobties, they're now going for gambling advertising, going for online gambling, going for all sorts of stuff, because they feel that they've got a bit of momentum. Um, but the problem gambling rate in this country is about 0.5%, and it has been ever since we've been measuring it. We start, only started measuring it in 1999. But in those 20 years so is it that of all gamblers one in 200 is uh, yeah a problem, a problem gambling okay. yeah um, uh, a problem gambling is assessed by uh, you not just being gambling about, <laughs> you just get asked like 12 questions and yeah. I think it's kind of reasonable but actually do you have that impulse yourself are you, do you like a no, I like a gamble but I'm not no I, it's, I, I, it's I just don't think there, I get addicted it? to it you know I've never I've ne- like the first time I lost like 20 quid like, yeah, you know I mean? I that like, teaches you a lesson. Fuck that! Like, yeah, yeah. But one of my mates once put it to me that the buzz from um, the buzz from gambling was like he said, you know, when you're driving down a motorway, and then suddenly like something in front of you um, breaks unexpectedly, and you slam on the brakes, and you almost hit it. Yeah. 
He said that's like a buzz of gambling. It's like, a combination. That's a shit buzz. Yeah, that it's a combination feeling. of like absolute panic at losing large amounts of money combined yeah. with the possibility of winning a lot of money. That, right. that weird combination. Okay. And that's why you know, the more you stake, the more exciting it is. Because yeah, yeah. You, but not only could you win more, but you can also lose more. That I guess is where the excitement is. But most people um, who've you know had a, a, a bad night in the casino, or whatever, kind of learn the lesson from it and just go, okay. I'll, Calm it down. I know a lot of people. And I expect you do too. You mm. Used to you, you know, used to play the fruit machines too much in the pubs. You know? Yes, yeah, hey, yeah. When they first start going to pub, there's always one lad, isn't there? It's like, can you lend us a quid? It's about to pay out. You know? And you see that look in the eye, don't you? you see, yeah. they start calling them the fruities, and the, yeah. the, the, there's a fondness in their term. I remember as well, like my, I do think there's a lot of gender differences in gambling. I think ultimately Massively, yeah. women, but like my mum used to call that the bingo having a flutter. So she even gave it a word that kind of like excused her for it. My old man spent a few money, uh, you know, spent 40 quid on beer. Outrageous. She done 40 quid at a bingo. <laughs> Just like it's sociable. And I thought, all right. And like one day I thought, well, yeah, it is so sociable. I'll go down and I'll, I'll see her in her natural habitat. She was doing 12 books, <laughs> right? She wasn't making eye contact of anyone. It was smoking and gambling. That yeah. was all it was. There was literally no difference between <laughs> a bloke standing there. You know those old seedy blokes you used to get the bookies watching mm. like the greyhound racing I just thought I just thought it's funny isn't it that they're able to excuse it that way and now you get the online the online ones like Foxy Bingo and the way that it's it's marketed mm. it's, it's, I don't see any distinction between bingo and horse racing no it's a form of gambling bingo was invented in the 40s I think as a way of getting around the ban on Lotteries. It's essentially uh, a lottery, yeah, right? Bingo. Guess, yeah, it's yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. a lottery. You're picking, you're given some numbers, yeah. and you see which ones come up. But by pretending it's a game, they mm. got around the, the gambling laws. Have you ever been? Have you ever been to a bingo? Have you ever played like a proper? Uh, no, no, I don't think I have. No. Do you know it's really funny because like um, you just get like uh, people call when they're wrong. So like house, all right, house. I mean, it's probably all, all kind of automated now. But when I went in the late nineties. So this was one in Croydon, and then um, someone comes around and they go, false claim, you just think those people just haven't kept up or they've got excited. They're just trolling it? They? Yeah, I don't know. I just, I don't know if it's like shit posting or something yeah. at, at, at the bingo. And then they played the National as well, which is like, you know, something like 17. Oh, grand. yeah, yeah. And, and it was, even then, I don't know how they did the tech on it. It was all coordinated. They'd be like, uh, we have a winner. In Manchester, and then you obviously learn fucking men. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> it's never in London, never in London. Um, but yeah, yeah I, I, I do find that now we we do think these things are characterised by who the people that can't handle it rather than the people that can. I mean, like what we often think about libertarians is like is where's your line, right? Do you do you have a line? Because yeah. the truth is that a lot of these things, particularly uh, li totally liberalised laws on hard drugs. We know that they're never really going to come in, so we can say it, but the idea of what might happen if it was introduced, yeah. what do you think would happen if, if, for example, you could buy cocaine and heroin as a recreational drug in this country? What do you think would happen? I, I'm, that, where could I get it? That, that wouldn't be my system. My, my system would be to try to, to turn back the clock to the 19th century, basically, before yeah. there was any kind of prohibition on drugs. You know? Opium. Opium, laudanum was very common. Most people, you know, would have taken opium at some point in their lives. A lot of people, yeah. especially around the fens, for some reason, uh, <laughs> used to take a lot of opium, and didn't really it's have a problem with it. Yeah, boring. I mean, if anything, just introduces a few undulations, then it's probably worth it. Well, it's it's a funny one because there was a huge problem with kind of opium addiction in China, and the anti-opium movement in Britain wasn't about stopping people in in Britain mm. taking opium. Nobody really even considered that to to be an issue. 
the anti-opium thing was, we, I don't know if you know about the opium wars, but we basically forced the Chinese to buy our opium from India mm. uh, in the uh, mid-19th century. And a lot of people in Britain thought that that was kind of immoral, understandably, and that it was a, you know, a violation of Chinese sovereignty. And so the, this, I think it was called the Society for the Suppression of the Opium Trade or something like that, they campaigned very hard to, to, to undo that and to respect China's ban on opium. Uh, which they achieved, I think, in 1906. But there was never any kind of movement to ban people in this country from taking drugs themselves. That mm. was the interesting thing. And there was, even though opium, you could buy it in pubs, you know, you can get it anywhere up until about 1868. And even after that, you can still get it from a pharmacy. Um, it was never, it never seemed to be a, a drug of kind of... Uh, um, abuse. It was. It Is wasn't it like being, there was a big problem with you know gin and stuff like that. Mm. You had various kind of. Uh, but there things that I often think of drugs. There are things that you can obviously do each day, right? But then there's drugs like acid, like ecstasy to mm. avoid. I wonder if it's like that where you go. You know what? That was a lot of fun. Probably not going to do that for a while. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's a bit extreme. And most sensible people maybe because opium, as I understand, it, is a more altered state type drug and more. You know, you you more incapacitated during the period that you're high. On it. Kind of, it's not as strong actually as a lot of people assume because people kind of get it mixed up with heroin, which is vastly right. stronger. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, as I say, I would try and go back to the kind of market that we had in the 19th century when there really wasn't much of a problem actually with um, drug addiction on any real scale. And I appreciate a lot of things have happened since then. There's been a you mm. know, cultural revolution in the 60s and all that kind of stuff, and you can't put the genie back in the bottle. But to cut a long story short, I wouldn't legalise heroin or crack cocaine or crystal meth as such, but I wouldn't ban the the component drugs. So I, I could see a market in which cocaine was an ingredient in certain products, mm. right? but not necessarily powdered cocaine. And I couldn't stop people from making crack cocaine. It's not very difficult to, to do if you've got some bicarbonate of soda. But I wouldn't necessarily have it on the market. And I maybe some libertarians would say I'm being a fascist by, by saying so that's that. That's what's right? interesting. But, this whole spectrum that they're getting. But it's like you can't you can't buy yeah. <laughs> you can't buy you can never please the really hardcore libertarians. But you can't yeah. go into a shop and buy a hundred percent proof alcohol, right? We have certain kind of yeah, standards yeah. on that. If you're a uh, kind of you know believe in liberal economics, you want so you want people to be able to make a, a, a genuinely free choice. And there is an issue around addiction on that basis. I, are you truly free if you're addicted to a product? It's a, it's a, it's a yeah, serious yeah, it and important yeah. question. But on the other hand, are you free You know, if, if something's banned, right? What's, mm. what's a bigger restriction on freedom? Having some people who've got some kind of dependency or just n nobody's allowed to buy it whatsoever. Clearly, prohibition is a greater restriction on freedom, but maybe you know, there are grey areas. Um, that and you know, I've never taken crack again, but you know I, I hear it's extremely Moorish, and maybe that <laughs> is maybe that is a, a real restriction on those people's freedom, and you need to have sensible regulation around that. I, I don't know what the answer is for some of those drugs. What was interesting growing up, I suppose you talk about going back to a period before there was a such heavy legislation as there is now. Is um is when I when I first heard about drugs and knew what they were, I just sort of thought, oh, these have always been banned. I think a lot of people intuitively mm. think that. Do you know what I mean? Like they just came on and they were banned. I was, I was watching like the first series of Peaky Blinders and they were doing Charlie in the toilets. You go, oh yeah, like this this is this is oh, really? a thing before. Well, yeah, <laughs> but I mean, cocaine was it, mm. it wasn't banned. When was cocaine banned in this country? Yeah, they were all kind of banned around about nineteen twenty. It was mm. it was all 
part. It was actually in the, a lot of people don't know this, it was in the Treaty of Versailles. Was it? <laughs> the, yeah, the full legal, like global prohibition of certainly opium yeah. was in the Treaty of Versailles. There'd, there'd previously been a convention. The Americans basically got together with the Chinese. Um, very long story short, the, the Chinese yeah. blockaded American um, ships for quite mm -hmm. a long time because the Americans had uh, banned Chinese immigrants coming to America. So it was a tit-for-tat thing. And to try and make friends with China, America got on side and said, we will help you defeat the opium trade and we'll, we'll ban mm. um, the sale of opium and we'll get as many other countries as we, we can to uh, ban it as well. So do you, think, do you think if there's a world war now and there was a modern treaty of Versailles, would sugar... <laughs> well, sugar be one because that's something that I've seen you talk about often, and and the way that sugar suddenly because I can remember it's always been different things. I remember it's fat when I was younger. It's got cut, yeah. cut down the fat in your diet, and then of course we go, oh, actually you do sort of need a bit of fat, and then carbs, and and now it seems to be squarely in on mm. on, on sugar. How how much moral panic is there around sugar? It came almost out of nowhere. The sugar thing, you know, it's mm. a very very recent uh, panic. It wasn't around ten years ago. At all, mm. you know, you're right. It was about fat. You know, Denmark brought in a fat tax in 2011, I think. And that it sounds like something that you know, when I was at school, would be a bullying thing. Fat tax, <laughs> yeah. just take your yeah. take your whisper. It was a tax on saturated fat and any products that had saturated fat in it. And a lot of nanny states around the world were very excited about this. This is the way forward, mm. uh, and it fell apart because it was incredibly unpopular. And there's loads of cross border. You know, trade yeah, yeah. in, in Lurpak and bacon and stuff. Um, You'd think that Denmark all so, places would have. Well, right, yeah. The, the, all their main products are, <laughs> yeah. are very high. Really <laughs> so it didn't go down well. But what's interesting is it wasn't a tax on sugar, right? It was a tax on fat. Yeah. That's less than 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And in that time, the uh, focus has switched enormously from, from fat to sugar. Action on sugar were formed about 2014. And they were just incredibly successful. There's only about three people in Action on Sugar. It's a tiny little pressure group you could fit in a phone box. Mm. But they managed to get themselves on the front pages saying it's a new tobacco. Look at all the teaspoons of sugar in this. Look at mm. the teaspoons of sugar in that. Public Health England got on board with a sugar reduction plan. We've now got a sugar tax, of course. Um, and what, that is it. That's the what we're always from. led to fear. Teaspoons of sugar. Do you remember yeah. what they used to say about like rainforest? It was always football pitches. Or, yeah, or okay. Belgium. Yeah, or the size of Wales. Or Wales, yeah. Or something like that. And, then, and then, then teaspoons full of sugar. Because is, is there something misleading about that? Because what they're sort of saying is the idea of you deliberate. Because you're, I, I immediately I'm thinking, God, what would tea taste like that if I put 16 teaspoons right. full of sugar? But it's, sugar doesn't work like that, does it? As an, it's a nutrient. So that's something I learned from you. Is like I always thought of it as this evil thing. And then you go, well, actually, it's a really crucial... Part of a diet. Did you always think it was an evil thing, or was it just the last few years? Uh, well, I suppose, like, yeah, I remember, like, about like Ribena tooth when I was a kid and oh, right. stuff. So, so there was always uh, a view. And my mum, my mum, for some reason, seemed to think that anybody that put uh, sugar in tea was sort of evil. Um, but she had sugar in coffee, so it was a completely <laughs> sort of eccentric take on it. But yeah, I, I did, and then it, yeah, it's a nutrient. It's like it's a, just a yeah, it's just a carbohydrate. There's mm. nothing special about sugar. There really, there really isn't, but other than uh, the potential for tooth decay, right? Like that's the only difference. Yeah, so yeah. If you don't brush your teeth and you have a lot of sugar regularly around your teeth, then you, you're going to have problems. But just brush your teeth, you know? Tooth decay... I mean, that's is... the point, like, personal responsibility. <laughs> yeah. it, but that sounds radical, doesn't it? Like, it's a, 
Just brush your fucking teeth. And people do. And tooth decay and is at record it. lows amongst both children and adults. I mean, the, the decline in tooth decay since the 1970s is unbelievable. But this it's is it's thing, fallen right? so steeply. And yet we, t- we hear about tooth decay crisis. We're, we're consuming less sugar than we did in the 70s, significantly less. But we're we're consuming about like the that. same as we did at the start of the 20th century. And people have no idea. This is this kind of myth that, oh, in your grandmother's day, we yeah. just ate, you know, uh, turnips and, and then, yeah, yeah, yeah. square meals. They didn't. People just didn't. It didn't in your mother's day. It didn't in your great grandmother's day. Mm. Even if you look at like Mrs. Beaton's cookbook from mm. the mid nineteenth century, there's plenty of sugar in there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and well, it was they, all they desserts, angel delights, you know. You know like, yeah. And I'm, I would say I've always, always thought that about the older generation. It might be they love uh, sugar. They love, I love think a it cake. Might don't be they? an overhang from like um, rationing, perhaps. You know, like when they always like my, my old man. It always spread butter like it was going to be rationed again at any yeah. point. Like there was a degree of... I've sort of since, since realised that he's right with butter. You, if you really want to enjoy it, don't fuck about. Yeah. You know what I mean? But he's also a man that would put salt on bacon. So he's... Uh, <laughs> my, my, yeah, it's not salty enough, is it, Rick? Yeah, and, 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 tomato, and ketchup on tomato. He, he was <laughs> strange, like... In, kind of radical in his own way but but a lot of things that you said there will be challenging to what most people think which is uh, yeah. that, that just it's not fact. getting worse but the liberals say everything's getting worse it's getting worse with descending upon this fucking toothless out of the EU dystopia yeah but it's not true. It's not getting worse. And the only way they can pretend it's getting worse is by moving the goalposts. So yeah. a few years ago, they halved the sugar guidelines. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, why they did it is a long story. I've written about it. But basically, there is no scientific basis for halving the sugar guidelines. There isn't really a scientific basis for having sugar guidelines at all, mm-hmm. quite honestly, because it's just, just a source of calories. There's, there's scientific evidence for saying you should only consume so many calories. But the proportion of it that comes from sugar really doesn't make any difference. Anyway, they halved the guidelines for no reason whatsoever. And now campaigners go around saying, people in Britain are, drinking, uh, are consuming twice as much sugar as they should. In other words, people are consuming within the old guidelines, but we've changed the guidelines. Right. They do this all the time. There's a constant moving of the goalpost, inventing new things. You know, yeah. Problem gambling is not going up, so we've created this new category called at-risk gambling. Mm. We've invented pre-diabetes. A lot of this stuff is to help the pharmaceutical companies sell, sell more products. You know, mild alcoholism is one that pharma companies tried to get into the circulation <laughs> a few years ago. Uh, this country anti- is alcohol. founded on mild alcoholism. Al- alcoholics are only drink mild, you know. <laughs> There's an appetite for panic. You know, hmm. good news doesn't sell. Yeah. You know, this is why we don't hear about, you know, the, the number of people who are lifted out of poverty every day around the world, you know. We just hear that there's gross inequality and things are getting worse. Food banks. So many things are Food banks. <laughs> that's a food banks. Yeah, that's yeah. another one, right? So the poverty rate hasn't gone down in this country. So food banks. Food yeah. banks, as if it's some kind of measure of anything. You know, it's, it's not... You know, most things in Britain and around the world are getting better. And but that is it makes it difficult to maintain idea. this panic, but it's, you know, the but facts of, speak for themselves. But know? a lot of people don't think that, and it's not just on the left, you know, it's people just, it's an inherent part of the human People condition. have always thought that, yeah. Just, it's so. bad and it's getting worse. Yeah. That would have been like the underlying sort of sentiment of humanity, even though every graph is going the other way. And it's right. so, and it's really weird that it's so challenging to people to just say, you know, the global, global poverty thing. Because what you often find is a lot of people that, that, you know, the hashtag open borders posse that talk about the global community. You mentioned poverty. They seem to only be able to talk about it in parochial terms. So they'll say, yes, but in Britain this has happened. But, you know, leave it aside whether or not that's accurate. Why aren't we taking into account what's happening in China and India? Why, why, is that, why is that not of concern to you? Because really perhaps they're not as um, global as they think. 
Yeah, and it's not just them. It's I think it's really the public in general. You know, people have an appetite for bad news. They don't particularly have an appetite for good news. People, yeah, newspapers and TV shows have occasionally tried to um, get people interested in good news. It never works. People just don't want to know. I don't really want to know most of the time. Well, to quite honestly, if I pick yeah, up a newspaper, I want to hear about you know sad things. But I suppose what, what we're living with is this weird period is that the liberal left who find themselves struggling to get political power is that they're, they're now cast as the Cassandras of world politics because cause they're not in power. They have to create... Because it was, it was the Tories once upon a time, you know, broken Britain, you know, everything's getting worse, single mm. mothers. They used to be these people. And it's so weird now. I don't know about you, I find it such a funny sort of optic I, to get, like, right-wing politicians going, you know, let's just be... Let's just be happy, man. Yeah, Why yeah, does everybody yeah. chill out? And then well, I think one of... I mean, Labour had a, a lot of problems, obviously, in the last election, but I think one of them, which I, they haven't grappled with at all, is that they just assumed that everybody was miserable. Uh, they were working in zero-hours contracts. Yeah. Um, they were suffering from austerity. And people just didn't feel that mm. because it wasn't well, really true, right? And you yeah, can yeah. give as many figures as you want about food banks, but the, for the vast majority of people, the last 10 years actually hasn't been that bad. No, no, no. The I last mean, decade is the first one since the probably for 100 years, had, had no recession. Now, growth wasn't great, but it didn't have a recession. We got record low unemployment. Mm. For a lot of people who've got a mortgage, you know, having you know, historic low interest yeah. rates has been a pretty good thing. Now, obviously, not everything in the garden is rosy, but for people like Jeremy Corbyn to come out and just assume that everyone's miserable, yeah. everyone's working in the gig economy and can't stand it. And it doesn't cut through with people because it's not their lived experience. No, I mean, zero hours, like most of the research done about zero hours, people appreciate the flexibility. People mostly like it, yeah. But this is just because, I suppose, if you're in a weird way, and you do find people on the liberal left that like this now, they, they, they tend towards a certain patrician, you know, like, I know we've got to look after these poor people in the zero hours economy. They don't credit them with having any agency. And, and it's just casual labour. Yeah, exactly. They, it's they not just the first really, time. They, yeah. the zero hours contracts, I think I kind of looked into this and um, how often the term was used. Yeah. Uh, like on the internet and in uh, in newspapers and stuff like that, it was never used at all. <coughs> excuse me, until about 2013, hmm. Ed Miliband got it into circulation, and after that point, its use rose exponentially. But the number of zero hours contracts hadn't risen exponentially. Hmm. The Office of National Statistics didn't really uh, measure it. They obviously didn't measure it and then call it zero hours contracts because it's just casual labour and. The research that we have on it shows that actually the vast majority of people in zero-hours countries are happy, A, with their job. They don't want more hours. It suits them perfectly. My sister-in-law's on supposedly zero-hours contract. She loves it. And I told her that Labour were talking about banning it. She was genuinely horrified. She goes, no, I love it. I can work from hour, do the hours when I want. I've got three kids. I need to pick them up. I need to be flexible. Yeah. Right? But again, it's She's basically just employed to do something. And she can do it when she wants. That's a zero-hours contract. But it's about a state going, I, we, I know better than you right now. Like, whatever your lived experience is, I, I'm a state, and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about banning things, despite the evidence that, that people like it. I think, in a way, zero-hours work is, is just a resurgence of that thing that we once knew. It was like ducking and diving. Right. You know? <laughs> we touched briefly upon like, party politics there. Does, is your party politics quite sort of transit? Do you sort of go towards who the most libertarian... Guardians are well, sort of. I mean, I'm kind of anti-socialist, so yeah, it doesn't okay. give you much of a choice these days. You know, really. I mean, there isn't. I, I'm like most libertarians. I'm a man of our party. I, I wish that um, 
the Liberal Party was genuinely liberal. Mm. You know, I think yeah. maybe that's how they could get themselves back on their feet is mm. by you know going for that and gap. It's such in an the interesting market, point that know? wouldn't occur to them. They think their thing is to be more, you know, to go for these kind of virtue signaling social media posts. Yeah, it's, I mean, you know, the Conservative Party. Then you know they've got form in in terms of uh, overreach themselves. I mean, there's a lot mm. of things they've been considering recently. The porn pass yeah. was one example. Are there any other examples? Well, they've of done where... the sugar. T- they've done loads of nanny state stuff. I mean, yeah. Cameron was terrible for it. May was even worse. Yeah, they're not. There's yeah, lesser of two evils, really, um, when, when compared to the current Labour Party. But you know, I one of the reasons I was. I mean, I joined the Labour Party in '96. I was at university, didn't go to many meetings, um, but uh, I did. I got a rosette on me um, outside the, the polling station. I did the exit poll for a couple of hours, May the 1st, 1997. Mm. Um, and uh, one of the reasons was I just thought the Tories were too paternalistic and authoritarian. Yeah. Mm. Um, and in many ways, they were. I just didn't realise what you know, Labour were going to turn into. But from my point of view with the nanny state, the slash public health stuff, I mean, they're, they're both pretty much as bad as each other, really. I think yeah. under Boris Johnson, maybe things will get better. But it, like it seems like there's a cross-party consensus on this stuff, pretty much. Well, they think that the force is with them. You often see that when they stand up and talk on these issues, that, that especially when right-wing uh, politicians do it. It's like their moment to be a good person. Mm-hmm. And I think They like these big projects. It's the same with climate change. They like the idea of saving thousands of lives and saving the planet. You know, the, these people, a lot of them haven't got... Um, a, lot, a lot of people, a lot of MPs didn't really go into politics for any particular political objective, you know? No, Some yeah. did. They want a sense of mission. But a lot of the ones who did only went in for, you know, they've got two things they want to achieve, and if they're a backbencher, they're going to be bloody lucky to do either of them, and they're not that bothered about anything else. Um, so they like the, the idea of a stroke of a pen, mm. saving thousands of lives, or delivering thousands of children from a life of you know, nicotine addiction or gambling addiction or whatever it may be and of course saving the planet with net zero and what all these things have in common is very low political cost yeah. you know, Theresa May is saying we're going to um, decarbonise the economy completely by 2050 by which time she'll be certainly retired if not <laughs> yeah, dead yeah. right it's completely painless. It's, it's mm. pretty much virtue signaling for the MPs just to go in and go, yeah, we'll do 2050. And it's mm. equally virtue signaling for Corbyn to go, we'll do it by 2035 and whatever, 2030. Mm. And climate extinction, or extinction rebellion to go, we'll do it 2020. You're not going to do anything. You we'll know? do it by Thursday. Uh, we'll, be, we'll all be Amish. That's the easiest yeah. way. I mean, to you can get say what it. you like, but you're not actually going to do it. You haven't got a plan to do it. Climate, uh, Extinction Rebellion certainly haven't got a plan to do it. And it's a bit similar with the, with the public health stuff. They know that this stuff is neither massively popular nor, generally speaking, massively unpopular. But they can just do it and go, OK, we'll bring in plain packaging for tobacco. We won't bother kind of assessing whether it made any difference at all in the future. We'll just move on to the next thing. I'll just up in Scotland, we'll do minimum mm-hmm. pricing. And, you know... We, we look good we're a world leader they love that bit you know mm. it's always countries like Scotland or Australia or whatever like we are the world Ireland loved the world leader you know? yeah, ever, you since, know, ever since Ireland banned smoking became the first country yeah. to ban smoking they've been looking to be a world leader on all this Is stuff. It, you know like in the Guinness Book of Records where some right what's a record that hasn't been broken what's that yeah 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 kind of uh, you yeah, know, I'll doing, do that doing beer, beer maps with baked beans 
<laughs> I'll do that. I mean, in a weird way, is it like? Um, does it feel like? More, I, I wonder if it feels like more of a betrayal when when a right wing party get involved in this because you think like if you've got any chance at the moment of more libertarian tendencies I do think that you're, you're right about the, the Liberal Party and concerns it's, it's the most underserved uh, constituency in politics mm. is libertarians I think there's a lot of people that feel this way instinctively across the left right divide but no open pitch has ever been made to them why, why would that be? Is it just not smart enough to realise the audience, really? Some of the Tories kind of do it with a nod and wink, don't they? You know, mm. and some of it's some of the, some of the Tories way, genuinely you know, are kind yeah. of you know more or less classically uh, liberal, but it's a bloody broad church. You know, mm. the Tory party, any party that's big enough to encompass uh, Philip Davis and Sarah Wollaston is a very broad church yes, indeed. Yeah. You know. Listen, Chris, it's always fascinating to chat, mate. Obviously, you've still got your books are still out. They can be uh, got on Amazon. Anything else you need to push at this point? You can download my last book, Killjoys, for free from the IEA website. IEA website. Yeah. And uh, like I say, well worth a follow on Twitter if, if this kind of thing has piqued your interest because, uh, well, it's basically like, you know, as you've seen from the live show, first 10 minutes, first 10 minutes of it is based on stuff that you pointed out. <laughs> uh, so, Christopher Snowden, thank you so much for coming on What Most People Think. Absolute pleasure, Jeff. Okay, so that was the chat with Chris Snowden there. I hope you enjoyed that. It's always, whenever I have a chat with Chris, I come away feeling uh, a little bit smarter and a little bit more kind of uh, vilified about my, my suspicion of the big state. Um, we're just going to do some letters here, just a couple of letters quickly this week. We had one from um, Mike W. Thank you, Mike. He, um, he was watching the test cricket on the BBC Live Text. It's a great way to watch cricket. Some people say the very best. And uh, they, there was a guy that texted in from Verwood. So this is this ongoing investigation as to whether Verwood is a place. And there was a guy... That, I mean, it doesn't prove anything. The guy just claimed to be from Verwood. Do you know what I mean? I could claim to be from Tatooine, right? I always get a Star Wars reference in. Um, but we are building a portfolio, a dossier of evidence that Verwood exists. Uh, also had a letter from Big Jim here. I don't know where Big Jim comes from, but come on, he's got to be Scottish with a name like Big Jim. Um, so let's do uh, the most big bastard <laughs> Scottish accent we can do. Hey Jeff, I was listening to Radio 4 and heard that businesswoman talking about Bernard Footy chatting the workplace. What's going on, mate? Why can't you chill out? I reckon with a lot of these uptight people, they just haven't had sex for a while. Um, I don't know if you saw this. This was this, this businesswoman, I can't remember her name, Alison. I mean, it, you know. Alison sounds like the kind of woman that would... No no offence to any Alisons, right? But, um, but yeah, she was saying that there's so much football chat in the workplace, it can make the, it can make the workplace uh, very laddish. Because obviously being laddish is a bad thing, you know? You, you wouldn't be able to say that about girlish, would you? Oh, it's very girlish. You can't say that about women. But laddish, what, what's wrong with you? You can be a good lad or a bad lad. Laddishness in itself isn't the issue, right? Laddishness is only when... You've hired a couple of dwarfs and you're firing them at a massive dartboard. Yeah, with strippers. That's bad. That's bad. You know, when you've gone full Wolf of Wall Street, laddish. <laughs> um, yeah, it was very strange. Very strange what she said, that she just didn't like hearing blokes talk about football. What you got to understand, right, is that, man, we, we, you know, we, we, we struggle communicating at the best of time. And this might sort of segue nicely into a little bit of uh, men's mental health here. Is that men do sometimes like to talk in code, right? We don't like to get straight to the heart of it because it's sort of boring isn't it you meet up okay how are you how's the family yeah how's the kid how's the dog sort of we pad our way around it in the form of, of sports points you know I'm, I'm telling you what kind of man i am by 
the way that I analyse sport. And as I say out loud, I do realise this is mentally probably quite unhealthy. So if men, what's what men supposed to do? I, you know what I reckon? I reckon she's one of these old-fashioned workhouse types that really, it doesn't really matter what people are talking about. All she sees is lack of productivity, right? So cynical fucker. She's, she's tried to peg it into feminism when really all she wants is more bang for a buck, yeah? And, may, and Big Jim thinks that maybe it's a lack of sex that's making her so tight in the first place. So finally, a political fight. Now, this one was from Andrew, who's from Wigan, and he's, uh, he's noticed a few other people doing this. Uh, a few other people are talking about the political fight thing. So I'm glad that people see it as, as a good little format point. Um, as ever, I always like to slightly be ahead of the curve and thinking about other things. And so Andrew pointed out, um, who would build a tent quickest out of the Labour leadership hopefuls, right? I think, that's a very, I think that's an excellent sort of spin on it. So let's have a think about it, right? So we've got Rebecca Long-Bailey. Um, I think she'd be quite an organised tent builder. I think Rebecca Long-Bailey would have been up till three in the morning looking at YouTube um, tent building tutorials. And then actually when it comes to it, None of that really helps, and she is uh, it's an absolute fucking mess, right? Uh, Lisa Nandy, I think that she tries to seem get up and go, I do not think she's getting anywhere near the tent building process. I think she gets her fella in. And, you know, you might say that that's a bit sexist. I'm just saying, I, I, that's how she strikes me. I think she's that, not all women are like that. Oh, hey, who am I kidding? When it comes to tents being put up, in the history of time, let's do a YouGov on that, yeah? Let, let's find out what percentage of tents have been erected by women. I'll be interested. I, I'm, I'm thinking 18%, maybe. So I'm thinking Lisa Nandy is one of those women that doesn't, it's not a great tent putter-upper. Um, Keir Starmer, he, <laughs> he, would he be, yeah, I think he would. And it's not just because he's a bloke, he's that kind of bloke, isn't he? He's got the waterproofs, Keir, you know, he did it with his dad. He had a constructive relationship with his dad, Keir. I get that impression, him and his dad out there putting up tents out in nature, right? Talking, <laughs> I reckon Keir, Keir would put up a good solid tent. <clears throat> it would be a bit of a, a glamping sort of tent. Do you know what I mean? It would have a, uh, it would have like a meditation room or something. So there would be, the, he'd, he'd put his metropolitan spin on it. Uh, Emily Thornbury, um, uh, yeah, I think, you, you know, you get a, get a couple of sherries in her. I think she'd give it a go. And she, <laughs> I think that, I think she'd give it, I think she'd want to start off like, like, you know, power to the people, elbow grease, I'm a normal person. She'd drink and then eventually she'd just, she'd just hire a bloke to do it. And then the bloke would be someone who has a St. George's flag out of his house and it'd all be uh, a bit awkward. So out of those, I'm thinking, uh, Starmer, he's got the muscle and he's got the know-how. Okay, that is pretty much the end of episode 25 of What Most People Think. If you do have reactions to the stuff that's been said here or stuff you want to follow up on, uh, email, letter, write in a letter via email, which makes sense, which is whatmostpeoplethinkuk at gmail.com. I do like looking in there and responding to those. Uh, we just got a couple of reviews, as always. If you leave me a five-star review, there's a good chance I will... Well, I'll read out a couple every week, and there's a good chance it will be yours because there generally are a couple every week. Uh, this is the... This is from Stephen TR11. Uh, I don't know if he's some sort of Terminator. Long time listening, first time commenter. I said he's a Terminator. Should I do this as Arnold? I can't. Oh, this is my first ever attempt at an Arnold Schwarzenegger impersonation. I've been listening to. 
I've been listening to this since the first episode. I listen to lots of podcasts, but I never felt the need to review one. I feel like Jeff needs it more than most. Kidding. Get it to the chopper. Um, okay, that, that, that was awful. That was up there with how bad the Yoda was. I don't know where I get off thinking I can just like freestyle an impression. Get it to the chopper. Okay, I'm doing an impression of someone doing an impression now. Um, so this guy, the next one, hard work and honesty pays. This sounds That sounds like, <laughs> you know, one of those things that could be uh, like gently negging you. Um, so this is from Biggles. So I'm going to think he sounds like a spit uh, spitfire pilot. Been following Jeff for years and from being a right wing novelty act wheeled out on programs like the MASH report, probably to meet quotas. <laughs> it's very pleased. I don't mind a quota. Just just so you know, you know, whatever gets me on the TV. I will say this, right? And this is going to be unpopular with a lot of people that listen to this. MASH report gets a lot of stick among my followers. Um, they were the first show to ever give somebody right of centre a regular slot on a show. Now, I know that the politics is, you know, can be somewhere left of fucking, you know, like the hard left, but sometimes, and it's very remaining, but I, I think they deserve, you know, I've got, to, you know, I've got to stand up a bit. I'm probably going to lose friends for that, but anyway. Um, it's very pleasing to see him get becoming mainstream and getting, hopefully, the rewards he deserves. Unlike the virtue-signaling left-wing comics still dominate the airwaves, Jeff appears so stubbornly stuck to his principles to the annoyance of many, and long may it continue. He really does say what people think, as this podcast says on the tin, and he's leading the way in an anti-woke resistance. Well, I'm glad you like it, Biggles. Like I say with the woke thing, yeah, I, I, I do end up, you know, uh, sort of drilling down on a lot of things that's coming from the woke side of things. But, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm anti-shit ideas, and there's been a fair few coming from the woke thing, but uh, it's not just there, Preserve. So, but thank you so much um, for that review. And listen, man, I will be back in uh, two weeks in, in the new... Garden of Eden is Britain outside of the EU, but still kind of in the EU. Outside of the EU, but you know, in a transition period. But outside of the EU, but even when we do get outside, that's what's weird. But outside the EU. <laughs> <laughs>